Turn to your Bibles, please, and we'll read together from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, it's page 973 if you have a church Bible. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read the whole chapter. This is God's Word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. A woman who seduces her own father-in-law. Another who works as a prostitute. A shameful one-night stand leading to murder and cover-up at the highest levels of government and the military. A refugee, vulnerable, far from home, and all that's familiar to her, and struggling to survive. Or another young woman, probably a teenage girl, unmarried, pregnant, and facing all kinds of uncertainty, And rumours. Five characters, five people, not from the Christmas special of one of the soaps. I don't watch any of the soaps, but you can't miss the trailers and the ads at this time of year. And most of them seem to be gearing up for some kind of major shock storyline. But those five characters that I just described, they're not from EastEnders or Coronation Street or Emmerdale. They're not from the latest installment of a reality TV show. They're all from the family tree of Jesus. We read earlier from Matthew chapter 1. If you're able to turn to it again, please have your Bibles open in front of you. Matthew chapter 1, page 973 of the church Bibles. We read the whole chapter earlier, but we're going to focus on the first 17 verses this morning. And our title is very simple, Jesus' Family Tree. Jesus' Family Tree. This is the opening section of the first chapter of the whole New Testament. Everything so far, the whole Old Testament, has been pointing to the rescuer that God would send. Right back at the very beginning of our Bibles, the very beginning of creation, God makes everything. And after his perfect and powerful creation, humans sinned, disobeyed, rebelled against their king. And so the whole race, the whole creation, in fact, was cursed and corrupted and fallen. But there and then, right back at the very beginning, God promised that he would send a saviour. He promised that he would do something about it. That's right back in the very first few pages of our Bibles. And since that point, the whole Old Testament, 39 books, some of them small books, some of them huge books, everything leading up to this page that's open in front of us today has been preparing us for him, for that rescuer. Every book, every chapter, 
Every page of the Old Testament points us ahead to the rescuer, the promised Messiah. This, all those sacrifices that we might read about and, and wonder, what, what are they about? And they, the ceremonies of the Old Testament and the people and the places and the objects that are pointing us to Jesus. Page after page after page of the Old Testament... Then the Old Testament stops. And actually, there's a silence. There's a gap of 400 years after the book of Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament. It's just a page in in this Bible, maybe a page or two at most in your Bibles. From the Old Testament into the New Testament. But in real time it was 400 years. For us that would be going back as far as 1623. And everything that's happened since then. Just think for a moment of that. Try and and get into the timeline here of where we're, we're jumping into our Bibles today. But imagine that we could... Time travel and we could do it at high speed along the timeline of the the Bible so far. And we could go back right to the very beginning and see God making it all. And it's perfect and it's beautiful. And then see that the man and the woman and and the human race after them ruin it with sin. We could hear if we traveled back. We could hear God's promise to fix it and to put it right. And then... We would have to speed up our time travel and see century after century after century of the pointers and the prophecies towards that promised one. And then you've got this 400 years of silence. And now our Bibles pick up the storyline again. Matthew chapter 1. It's the beginning of the New Testament. We should come to this like children on Christmas morning. Where is what we've been waiting for? What we've been hoping for? We should come excited and anticipating. And Matthew, the writer, is going to get us to him pretty quickly. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Matthew will get us pretty quickly to Jesus. But before that, we've got verses 1 to 17. Jesus' family tree. The Savior, verse 21, tells us that he'll be Jesus. God saves. Verse 23 tells us he'll be Emmanuel, God with us. And before we get to those well-known verses, verse 21 and 23, we're going to learn more about the grace and the kindness of this God who saves and who is with us. So let's notice two points this morning from verses 1 to 17. First of all, God's grace in families. God's grace in families. 400 years of silence, centuries of eager longing and expectation, and then a family tree. 
there are probably two different responses to family trees and ancestry and histories like this. Maybe some of you find that hard going. When we were reading it earlier, you might, be, might have been wondering, why are we working our way through all of this? Maybe when we're reading, reading the Bibles for ourselves, we might be tempted to skip over the sections like this completely or at least skim through them pretty quickly. But as a church, we're absolutely convinced that all of the Bible is God's word. In fact, that it's breathed out by God. It's him giving us exactly what we, what we need. And that includes this page and these parts of our Bibles. It's all from God. It's all for our spiritual good. And that, so that's true of every page of our Bibles. It's true of these family trees or lists of names anywhere in our Bibles. And maybe we could say particularly this one. Coming as it does, as we've seen, right at the very start. Page one of the New Testament. After this long gap or silence. I said there, there are two types of responses. You, you might not be that excited about family trees or you might be very interested in family history. Lots of people are. Many people enjoy doing that sort of thing, tracing their family tree. Maybe you've got a reason why you want to track down a long lost relative. You can probably guess by the way I'm talking about it today. I'm not massively interested in this type of thing but I do have aunties and cousins who, who know the family trees and, and, and have put together books and big documents of the, the family tree on both sides of our family their TV shows like Who Do You Think You Are they're very popular and in lots of cultures across the world there's this great importance that's placed on your family we, in our culture we're quite self-absorbed and it's all about me here and now but in Asia and Africa and certain cultures there if you meet someone for the first time a total stranger they don't just want to know your name but they want to know which village you came from and who's your parents and who are your grandparents I've been to America a few times and it always amazes me when you're in America that when they hear that you're from Ireland they can just no matter who you meet, they can straight away tell you how many generations back in their family uh, came from Ireland and do you know some distant relative from Cork or something like that. Many of the, the Maori people in New Zealand can, can tell you which of the original eight long canoes that their particular ancestors arrived in when they first came to that country 800 to 1,000 years ago. So... Family trees, whether we individually are interested in them or not, that they are important to many people across the world and throughout history. And to the Jews, to God's special chosen people at this stage in our, in our Bible timeline, just right at the end of, of the Old Testament and coming into the New Testament, to them, your ancestry mattered. Paul gives us examples of that when he writes in the New Testament, like in Romans chapter 11. He shares his own Jewish ancestry. He says, I myself, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And so for Jewish people, and remember Matthew, our writer here, is 
a Jew writing for Jewish people primarily, they would actually be very interested in these first 17 verses. Some of us might be tempted to to jump over them or go through them quickly. They would be very interested. And that's because to Jews, families mattered. To the Jews, families mattered. Because to the God of the Jews, to the God of the Bible, families matter. Our God is a God who loves families. I hope that's been clear already in the Psalms that we've been singing. He's a God who loves to work in families. In this church, in the Reformed Presbyterian Church, we baptize the children of a Christian. Because if you're a Christian parent, since you're God's child, and since you are special to God and loved by God, your children or your child are special to God. Now let's also be in no doubt this morning. Family history doesn't save you. There's no guarantee of being in God's people, your family tree, your surname, your background, your blood relatives, your place of birth, your upbringing. Those, those are not the things that make us part of the people of God. It's only, only by personally coming to Jesus and through Jesus and trusting in what he did by his life and his death and his resurrection that we are part of the people of God. But it's equally true at the same time that families matter to this God of the Bible. And we see that, well, we see it in lots of ways, but we see it today in the very simple fact that God put his own son into a family here on earth. Jesus didn't just appear as a fully grown man. He could have. He wasn't raised by angels. Nor did he have to fend for himself. Those things wouldn't have been difficult for an all-powerful God. But here in our chapter today, we see from verse 18 onwards that Jesus had a daddy and a mummy. Matthew later, chapter 13 and other places, will tell us about his brothers and sisters. And here in chapter 1, we see that he had a granddad and a great-granddad and a great-great-granddad. And we see the whole, a big part of the family tree. Jesus had a family. And it shows us God's grace in families. God's grace in families. By being placed in a family, Jesus identifies himself with sinners. Look at verse 21. Joseph is told by the angel about the baby that Mary is carrying. 
And we read in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His people. His people. Now, in the fullest sense of that phrase, his people, it means all those that God the Father had set apart to save before the world began. It means everyone that God chooses to show his mercy to. That's what it means theologically. Those are some of the big Bible truths that are behind it. But what does that phrase mean practically, his people? What does that look like? What do his people look like? Well, in verses 1 to 17, we have a list. We've got men on this list and women. We've got born and bred Jewish people. And there are others on this list who are not from a Jewish background. There are giants of the faith. And there are those that we've hardly heard of. There are godly and great men and women on this list And there are some pretty messed up sinners, as we'll see in a few moments. So what do do his people look like? He'll save his people from their sins. What do his people look like? Seems to me from the page open in front of us, they look a lot like my family and your family and any family. Families matter to the God of the Bible. They matter so much that that's what God offers to us. Whatever your own family background, family storyline, family tree, many branches or not so many branches, this is what's offered to you by the God of the Bible in the good news of Jesus Christ, that you're brought into his family. This is what we thought about with the boys and girls. That's clear all throughout our Bibles, Old Testament and New Testament. Romans 8, just to pick one chapter, one example says of us within that one chapter that we can be sons of God, children of God, heirs of God. That Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. And if we accept what he has done for us on the cross, that's what we receive. We're brought into his family. We're not, we don't only have our sins forgiven. That, that is incredible. That is so much more than we deserve. We don't only have the certainty of heaven forever. Wow. We're brought into his family. We're called His brothers, Hebrews 2, says Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. So we see a little snapshot here in this this chapter, this list of names. We see a little glimpse of God's grace in families. And our second point is God's grace in brokenness. God's grace in brokenness. Let's dig deeper into this list itself now. 
And notice, especially five women, why them in particular? Well, I think we're supposed to notice these five women. It was rare in a Jewish family tree for women to be listed. You can see that for yourself. You look through, there are so many uh, family trees in the Old Testament. It'll quite often say so-and-so, the son of, the son of, the son of, or the father of, the father of, the father of. That's how they, they did it. That's how they listed their family trees. You can see an example in our New Testament with Luke. Luke is doing the same thing as Matthew. He's, they're both writing Gospels about Jesus. And both of them quite early on include a family tree. In Luke chapter 3, there are 76 men mentioned and not one woman. But Matthew includes five women along with about 40 men. So there must be a very deliberate reason why these women are included. He wants us to sit up and take notice. And even more so because they are not women we might expect to be on this list. If there were, if there were going to be any at all included, you might think maybe it would be Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, the wives of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, those great father figures. Of God's Old Testament people. Or maybe it would be Esther. That ruler raised up by God at a very specific and important time. To deliver God's people in a wonderful way. A way that they commemorated every year. Let me remind you how I described these five women at the start of the sermon. One woman who seduces her own father-in-law. Another who works as a prostitute. A shameful one night stand with a king leading to murder and cover up at the highest levels of government and the military. A refugee, vulnerable, far from home and all that's familiar to her and struggling to survive. Or another young woman, probably a teenage girl, unmarried, pregnant, uncertain for the future and facing all kinds of rumours. Their names are Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba, Ruth and Mary. And they are not who you might expect in the first chapter of the New Testament as you keenly await this promised Messiah. Let's be clear, there are plenty of flawed men on this list. But Matthew wants us to notice these women. All of them are notorious in some way. All of them are connected with sexual sin in particular or assumed to be. Let's look at the women who are listed here. Verse 3. First of all, Tamar. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You can read about her in Genesis chapter 38. Tamar's husband died before they'd had any children. And the law in Old Testament times was that the brother of the dead man was supposed to marry the widow and 
provide her with children. But the next brother died. The third brother was considered to be too young. And so the dad of these boys said, well, let's wait. But that dad, Judah, also mentioned here, never actually gave Tamar his third son. And so she felt she had to take matters into her own hands and disguised herself and slept with Judah, her father-in-law, and became pregnant by him. That's Tamar. The second woman mentioned in this list is Rahab in verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab hid Israelite spies when they came to, to see the land ahead of their attack on her city, the city of Jericho. Rahab was a prostitute. The third woman mentioned on the list is Ruth. Also in verse 5. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Now she's not as notoriously sinful as some of these other women. But she's famous for being a Moabite. If you read the book of Ruth, that's how she's so often referred to. Ruth the Moabite. Now there only is one Ruth in the book of Ruth. It's, It's not like you have to tell her apart from other Ruths. But she's called Ruth the Moabite so that we remember she was an outsider. She wasn't originally part of the people of God. And also, when we read of her as Ruth the Moabite, there's a connection there to sexual sin. Once again, the Moabite people could trace their origins back infamously to Genesis chapter 19 and to a drunken dad getting his daughters pregnant. That's Ruth. Ruth the Moabite. The fourth woman mentioned is Bathsheba. And yet she's not actually mentioned, not by name anyway. Verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Well, that tells you what we're to know about Bathsheba there. David, King David, had an affair. While her husband Uriah was off fighting in his army. And then fifth, the fifth woman mentioned on this list is Mary in verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now Mary accepted her pregnancy as a miracle of God, but many other people didn't. And so she faced a lifetime of whispers, often not even whispers, just comments right in her face or in Jesus' face, questioning his paternity, just a suspicion surrounded her probably all of her life, considered an immoral woman by some who would have thought that she should have been stoned to, to death. So all five of these women are notorious in some way or infamous. They're all sinners, as we all are. In their cases, there's some suspicion, at least, or connection with publicly known sexual sin. Most of these women are not Jews. They're from outside the people of God initially. And they... Very simply, they are not who you would choose 
for a hall of fame to begin the New Testament with. But they're exactly who God does choose and who God does use. These apparently disgraceful women. They're not airbrushed out of the records of God's people. There are no skeletons hiding away in the closet. No embarrassing family secrets that are to be left unmentioned. We don't talk about Bruno. Some of the, if you're kids of a certain age, you'll know what I mean when I say that. But they're, they're here. They're here. All of Jesus' family tree is shown to us here in the rottenness of all its branches. To this God who saves, verse 21. This God who is Emmanuel, God with us, verse 23. To this God, dysfunctional doesn't disqualify. And brokenness isn't a barrier. God's grace. See it today. It it, it seems like just a list of names. But see it today. God's grace in brokenness. He is more powerful than the rottenness of our family trees. And that's great to know. Because there's plenty of brokenness in our families. Some of us, we're coming towards the end of a year, and maybe you've You've had to plan family events throughout the, the year or, or even over these next few days around Christmas and New Year and, and these things maybe have been hard for you to organise or even for you to go to because of tensions or hurts or disagreements or clashes of personality within the family. Maybe there are family members that you're not even really speaking to right now or you're not on good terms with at the minute or you have anger in your heart towards because of things that have been said and done or not said and not done. Some of you, your own sons and daughters may not sit at the table with you at this time of year or they will, but they may not wish to be there. Some of you, your own parents, your brothers and sisters, the people we're going to see and spend time with at this time of year are not yet Christians Maybe actually those nearest and dearest, some of those close ones in our own family circles are the ones that are most hard, seem to us most hardened towards the gospel. Maybe they have been for many decades up to now. Some of you have have children, whether young or, or not so young anymore, that just seem willful or defiant or or, or to us it seems humanly speaking they're only going to go one direction some of you have family members who've walked out who've abandoned who've been unfaithful in some way some of our own families like for for some of the people on this list are, are overcast with a shadow of that has come from shame and abuse maybe family members struggling with addiction or, or whatever the brokenness 
this fallen, sinful world in which we now live. Families are broken. This family, Matthew chapter 1, this family is broken. But God's grace is big enough and powerful enough to work in all of that and to work through all of that. Look what he does through this family. Look at the verses that we're used to that come after this. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. He'll call his name Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. He'll be Emmanuel, God with us. Look, look where it comes in our Bibles. Because there's grace that's big enough to fix that situation in your family or mine. There's grace that's powerful enough to change that person. And let's not assume today that it's only others that are broken. God's grace is big enough to change us. Maybe we need to pray about the situation more than we do. Or maybe we did pray and we've stopped. Maybe we need to take the lead in going to the person whose relationship with us is broken. But see today, see God's grace. God's grace in families. And God's grace in brokenness. Amen. Let's stand and we'll come to God in prayer. Lord, our God, we worship you today that you are a God of grace. That you are a God who deals so kindly with us. Even when we don't deserve it, Lord, we deserve your anger and your punishment and your wrath. But you're a God of grace. Thank you, Oh God, thank you that you love to work in families. We know you can work outside of families as well. That Even, even in this gathering today and, and among people we know, there are those who, who haven't had Christian parents or grandparents, haven't maybe heard the gospel for many years of their lives and, and you've saved them. We worship you that you can do that, Lord, and you do. And yet we also delight to see so often your faithfulness and your grace in families from generation to generation. And we thank you that even in the coming of your own son, he's placed in a family to remind us that families matter to you and to show us that he identifies with this kind of people. Even broken, messy families like ours, oh God. And we pray Father, for your grace to be at work today and this week and in the new year that's ahead of us. In us, Lord, please, and in our families where there's brokenness. And we pray, O oh God, that you will bring healing and restoring and wholeness and new life where perhaps even now there is brokenness and hurt and conflict. 
We pray, Lord, even at this time of year, as we'll spend time, perhaps at Christmas or at New Year, with family members we may not see so much of. We ask, O oh God, that your grace would flood into the brokenness of our families and that you would use us to be the, the channels, the pipes, Lord, through which that blessing gushes. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory. Amen.